0: Okay. Yeah, okay, bye. Jesus, they want me to pray in church on Sunday. We gotta practice. It's gotta sound good, Jesus. No, it's gotta sound great. This is my one shot. I've gotta inspire them, I've gotta impress them. Let's pray. It's a lot harder than it looks. Sh- shall we pray? Sure. Let's try faster. Eyes open or eyes closed? Eyes closed, I pass out. Eyes open, I throw up. <laughs> our Father, Lord in heaven, forgive us sinners. Prepare us for the end times. Father God, just show us. Father God, all the Father God ways. Father God, that. Father God, you. Father God, our Father God with us. Now's the part where we played music during the prayer. And now we pause for a moment to confess our sins. And moving right along... Is that too fast? pray that you would save us from the communists, and socialists, the terrorists, and Al-Qaeda. You'll all join me and turn to the prayer on the screen. <laughs> Good golly, it is hot in here. Working in warm-ups. Thank you, God, for the three chords that I know, so I can play every worship song ever. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, you are a gnarly God. Oh, gosh, your ways are as mysterious as a giant wave. Father God, Holy Spirit, Son of God, Jesus, Father God, glory forever and ever. Because, God, you are sick and ever. Amen. Amen. Feedback time. I think I nailed it. I got totally enraptured by that video. I couldn't, sorry, I was like, oh yeah, it's my turn now. So uh, if you're new, I have ADD, I'm Rob, it's so good to see you, Um, as if you were shocked, come on. No, seriously, uh, we've been in this series on mornings with Jesus about how Jesus makes a radical difference in our life if we actually spend time with him, and I'm so excited to conclude this series uh, because of what God has been teaching me. But I remember this moment uh, a few years ago where I was sitting actually for a coffee with someone and I could feel my chest tighten. There was this moment in the conversation where like my chest, because I saw this person's hands wrap around and just clutch the edges of the chair. And it was when we started talking about the topic of faith we talked about, we'd been talking about mission trips and how each of us had seen and heard and felt God move in other, in different ways and ways that we'd experienced. And when we got to this topic of faith, I was talking about faith being a gift, being, or not faith being a gift, faith being trust in this action that we do. And this person said, no, 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 Faith is a gift. And some people get it and some people don't. And I just wasn't given that gift. In fact, I'll never have what you have, Rob. And with that, the conversation was over. Which really bummed me out. I mean, because number one, I'm an extrovert. Number two, like, I have this strength of winning others over, so I wanted to continue the conversation and, and convince this person that, that faith was really more like trust than a gift. And, and most importantly, I'm a pastor. I care deeply about faith and people. And that was the end of it. So what is faith? I mean, is faith more like a personality characteristic? You know, like, that, that if you have faith, you just have something in you that's, that's this emotional or psychological experience where, where you have hope and you have resolve regardless of the objective criteria in front of you. Or, or is it more like an aptitude? Where something that we can learn based on some objective objective experiences, or based on some specific moments in history. And, and we can learn those things, we can grow those things. It's, what is faith? Well, because we're concluding today, I thought it would be good for us to recap what we've talked about, just in case, you know, you are gone or anything like that. So in the first week of this Mornings with Jesus series, we talked about how in John 1, um, that the people that were able to really see Jesus were the ones that could admit their preconceptions. How each of us have some preconceptions about Jesus. If we could admit those, he would actually exceed the expectations we have for him. In the second week, we talked about how, um, how everyone has barriers to seeing Jesus. Whether you're a spiritual insider or you're a social outcast, each of us has things that keep us from seeing who God is, but he'll meet us in those and really wants to change us. In the third week, we talked about as we come to that point of change that there are these things that are broken, there are these things in our lives that um, just don't seem to work out, seem to actually go against faith. But yet Jesus meets us in those experiences. Because he's fully human, he meets us perfectly in our grief. And because he's fully God, he can actually do something about all those things that are wrong in the world. And then last week, we talked about how how Jesus can really actually bring joy into our lives. That's what he came for, not just to fix our lives and the problems in our lives, but to restore the whole world back to God because he gives his whole life to God. And today, we'll see how we're supposed to respond to everything that Jesus has done. And with that, we go to uh, John chapter 20. If you have your Bible or you have an app, you'll, I invite you to turn with me to it. John 20 is John's story or John's telling of the resurrection of Jesus. And in it, we see four responses to what it means to have faith. It, it shows us these three aspects of faith. So in John 20, it says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken away our Lord and we, and out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels dressed in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And they, she said, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if, if you have carried him away, tell me, Tell me where you, where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him, and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went to the disciples with the news I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had said, and she told them that he had said these things to her now here again in in this section, and then the one right after it, where it talks about Thomas, we see these four different responses to what it means to have faith. each of us shows each of them shows us an aspect or three aspects of what it means to have faith and and the first one is that that having faith is actually irrational. I mean, when people hear that for the first time, at least when I heard it for the first time, I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like something a pastor's supposed to say. But think about what you see in John's response. John runs up, he's there first, he's standing there, and it says he saw and believed. The, the word that, that the writer's using here for saw is like perceived. He looked in, he perceived, and he believed. Almost like, um, you know, that nursery rhyme that you, you learn as a kid? Oh, th- you know, there's a star, I, I, star I wish upon a star, the first star I see tonight, there we go, the first star I see tonight, I wish I may, I wish I might. It's almost like, oh, I see, so then I believe. It, it, it's almost nonsensical, but it's actually even more irrational than that, even though that's what a lot of people think faith and uh, having faith is. It's, oh, I see it and I believe it, but I didn't really think through it. But Mary shows us just how irrational this is. And because and Mary's puzzled at the tomb, she's distraught at the tomb. She might be even afraid at the tomb because it doesn't make sense that Jesus would rise from the dead. She's not thinking that. She thinks immediately that someone has stolen the body because it wouldn't make sense for him to come from, rise up from the dead. And, and the d- disciples that are the closest to Jesus When they come, when she tells them that, none of them go, oh, well, yeah, he said that he was going to rise after three days. So totally, he's not there. No, they freak out and they run too. Three different times, well, actually numerous times, but three different times in the book of Mark, Jesus tells them explicitly that he will die and rise from the dead. Why don't they believe this? I think it's because faith and having faith is irrational. Meaning, it, it doesn't make sense. It has to come from outside of us. We can't think of it on our own. It doesn't make sense if we just come up with it. That's what I mean by irrational. And it's actually even just impossible to come to faith without God's intervention. You might not agree, but let's just take a couple minutes on it. First of all, in Mark 8, 31 and 32, Mark 9 about 31 and 32, Mark 10, 32 through 34, each of those say that the Son of Man is going to suffer. Jesus called himself the Son of Man throughout the Gospels. It says that he's going to suffer. It says that he's going to be killed. And it says that after three days, he's going to rise. The first time, he tells them plainly. The second time, they don't really understand it. And the third time, no response is recorded. But three times, just in one section, he's saying explicitly this is going to happen. And they don't buy it. So when John runs up and he sees and he wonders, it could be that John actually remembers what Jesus had said. And he's like, well, yeah, yeah, he did say this, and so he believes it. Or it could be that, that he just wants this so bad that he's choosing to believe it. Either way, it seems like he can't be very objective about it. And that's the part about faith being irrational is that it's really really hard for us to be objective about it. Think about the conversations that you might have with people about faith. Do people get heated? Do they sometimes say things that that maybe go too far? Or they say things without a lot of evidence or without a lot of logical thinking? I think you'd agree that it's very hard for people to be objective about faith. It's something that matters deeply to people, and it seems like the more deeper we talk about it, that the more irrational sometimes we get. I mean, imagine if you're a judge, okay? You're a judge, and you happen to have some money set aside in investments, and so you happen to have um, stock, a lot of stock, in a successful company that's a pretty public company, and all of a sudden a case comes across your desk as a judge that says that they're committing fraud. And you know if they're guilty, you are going to lose a lot of money. Do you really think you could be objective about that? I mean, I think there's even a word for it in the court of law, but there's, there's no way the judge would have to recuse himself from trying that case. He's got a personal stake in the matter. He can't be objective about it. And that's what I mean by faith being irrational. It's very hard for us to be objective about it. Maybe you have struggled with faith, you know, rather recently, and so you remember what it was like for, for the reasons why you didn't have faith. Or if that's hard for you, think about some of the, maybe you've talked to people about why they don't believe. Have you really investigated those things? As I thought about it in the last couple weeks, I think one way, one reason that people don't believe is because, is because... Uh, the audacity of someone to come back from the grave, to claim that they're God, come back from the grave, and thus being having a higher authority of, over life and death would really mean that that person has to have more authority over life and death than anyone else, namely me, because I'm thinking about it from a personal matter, and thus that he might or she might have something to say about my life that I need to listen to. So we would lose some freedom over our lives if this person has a higher authority over life and death. That's one reason that I've heard from people that they don't want to believe. Another reason that I've heard from people that say they don't want to believe is that um, they had a bad experience with a group of Christians or they had an over, I'll just say, overbearing parent. And so this experience for them of faith is something that they don't want to, they just don't want to associate Associate themselves with. And if they do, they think associating themselves with that faith will mean that they're affirming what had happened to them. Well, it may not be true, but it's, again, it's one of the reasons why people maybe don't believe. And I think sometimes the plain reason why people don't believe in Jesus and what the Bible says is they're just afraid. They. They might be afraid because they don't know everything that Jesus has done and that Jesus has said, and they're they worried about what will happen because they don't know those things. I, I, I can relate to that, and I think that if we just stop and think about it, this proves that it's very hard for us to be objective about our faith. And so if you're, if you're willing at least to go there with me a little bit, then, then I think we can do some things. If we're kind of skeptical by nature, that's okay. We can just be skeptical about our own skepticisms. We could doubt our own doubts just a little, just enough to know if the conclusions we've come to are actually legitimate conclusions, if we've actually researched the other sides of the conversation, if we've read the books that talk about the case for faith and the evidence for the resurrection and things like that. And so one of the ways that you can just step into this skepticism is to pause long enough to see if your conclusions are valid. Nobody has to know you're doing it. Another thing you could do is you could pray. Uh, if faith is irrational and has to come from outside of us, then then we need help finding Jesus. The, the, I mean, restoration was started in these verses from Jeremiah 29, where it says that God knows the plans he has for us, and he's telling these people in exile that he has plans for them. And he says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, but it's because God is already seeking them. We can't, really come to faith without God seeking us first. And so we'll need to pray. We'll need God's help. And it's okay to say that. I mean, Mary, if she wouldn't have had divine intervention here like we see in this story, she, she probably wouldn't have found faith. And Thomas, the guy who, you know, is the great doubter, who says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and touch them, unless I put my hand in his side, I won't believe. He needed evidence. If he wouldn't have had evidence, he wouldn't have come to faith. These people needed help. But if you've ever been in this place where faith seems elusive, like some have it and some don't, like this friend of mine, I I would encourage you to look at Mary. I mean, Mary has Jesus working right alongside of her, and she doesn't see him. And you might have Jesus working right alongside of you in your life, and you're just not seeing him, but he's there so you can pray. Another aspect that I think this passage shows us the second one is that having faith is rational. It's it's reasonable. I don't mean to contradict what I just said. It's the it's the idea that faith isn't wishful thinking. Faith and reason can absolutely go together. Cuz reason is just logically thinking about the evidence at hand. And and this is what this is what Peter does. I mean, this is what the writer is doing. He's not hes not giving us religious science fiction. He's giving us eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Uh, our first clue that this is an eyewitness account is that the first person he lists saying they saw Jesus at the resurrection is a woman who can't give evidence in court. Nobody gives uh, in this time, I don't I don't agree, but in this time, no one gives women the credibility to, to try the, uh, to go in court and give testimony. So why would the writer do that? Unless it happened that way. But we see here that that Peter is actually thinking through. He's pondering. That's the, the word when Peter sees, it, it means that he pondered. It's theoreia in the Greek, if you're curious, but it's this idea of... a attentive seeing that that when you're in going through the steps of faith that it's okay to process those it's okay to logically think about those things and and that's what peter is doing and in hebrews backs this up cuz hebrews tells us in hebrews 11:1 that that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen peter's pondering the evidence he's looking at the grave clothes and in the tomb. And he's saying, he could be saying things like, wait a second, if Jesus had revived, wouldn't the grave clothes be torn away? Uh, it couldn't be that. Okay, well, if friends took the body because they wanted to preserve the body, then, then why would they have taken off the grave clothes? It's, it's completely against our culture. It's dishonoring to the body to be naked. Friends couldn't have taken the body. Well, if enemies had taken the body, then why would they have taken the time to take the clothes off and neatly fold them? As Peter is pondering and looking at the clothes, and especially the headcloth separate, he's thinking through the evidence. He's attentively looking at that. If you've ever been one of these people that likes to logically reason, you're in a good camp if you have faith, because having faith is fully compatible with that. That's what Peter is doing. And, 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 and faith is certainly more than reason, but it's not less than it. So if you're someone who needs evidence, it's okay, you're in a good camp. So faith is irrational in one sense. It has to come from outside of us. It's almost supernatural, I would say, instead of irrational, but it's in that camp. But it's also reasonable. Having faith is reasonable. But it's also, we see here, it is a gift. Having faith is a gift. I mean, the writer concludes the main portion of his book at the end of this chapter in verse 30 and 31 with this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote. That's what he wants us to see. He wants us to consider what is written here and believe that Jesus is the Christ and thus have life in him. To believe is this verb uh, um, that means to trust, to look at and have evidence. It's not necessarily this noun. So he uses this idea of believe, this idea of faith, three times more than all the other gospel writers combined. Which, if you're like, why does that matter? It must, he must have cared a lot about it. About this idea of believing and trusting. And yet, it is a gift. Because Mary wouldn't have gotten it had Jesus not come to him. And if he had not come to her. And so, this idea of believing means that you either believe because you've carefully evaluated the evidence, or you believe because you've had this irrational supernatural encounter with the resurrected Jesus, but either way, you believe and respond to one of those two things. Either the supernatural encounter or the evidence that you've carefully investigated. But to have faith is to respond to something or someone. And see, to have faith, we have to have an object of faith. We have to believe or trust in something or someone. And, and that's the point about Jesus' claims. If they're true, and if Christianity is true, then, then Christianity isn't just a set of beliefs that we agree with, it's actually centered around a person that we can have a relationship with. And that's the gift. be considered that gift mary had to consider that gift mary needed that divine intervention and jesus questions her woman why are you crying not to poke at her but to kind of get her to wake up can't you see that i'm alive can't you see that what what i said needed to happen in order for the whole world to start to be made right i needed to die and i'm alive again your hope isn't dead And so he calls her by name because she still can't recognize him. I mean, yes, he's the gardener. It's probably more true than we realize because Jesus is the word. John tells us in the first chapter and the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning. And and God was the first gardener in the Garden of Eden. So yes, there's a lot more there that we could just talk about. But Jesus is the good shepherd who says he knows his sheep by name even the ones that that can't get faith unless he brings it to them and he says mary and then she recognizes and then she sees and then she responds his faith is that response and it's a gift that's not based on her knowledge it's not based on her power It's not based on her gender. It's not based on her mistakes. It's not based on her efforts. It's just a gift that's freely given to all, not just Mary, but to you and to me. So how do you respond to that gift? Here's one thing you can do. Um, Chicago pastor Bill Hybels uh, tells this story, or told this story of an advertising executive that came to him after a service where he challenged people to meet with God. And this guy walked down the aisle and he was very driven as he walked down the aisle and he said, look, I don't know what your life is like, but I have this insane commute into the city and my schedule's packed. I do not have time for a meeting with God. And, and Bill's about 24 at the time, so he's like, well, I've just found in my experience that you make time for things that you value. And everything that I really care about, I make time for. And I make time for my meeting with God. And with that, the conversation was over. He <laughs> didn't see the guy for a few weeks, but several months later, the guy comes down the aisle, and, and he can just tell that this guy's countenance is different. The conversation they have is different. He says, you know, um, I, I'd really like you to come over for, for for lunch. And they didn't live too far away, and I don't think they had any kids at the time, so he went over to his house and he's showing him around his house and he goes to this corner in his house and he comes to this rocking chair and he goes, remember how you said that you challenged me to have time with God and to meet with God? He said, well, I just love rocking chairs. So I bought a good one and I put it here in the corner of our living room because I love looking out at this little scenery in my backyard. And so now I every morning I've been getting up 20 to 30 minutes early and I, I sit in my rocking chair and I, I have some coffee and I read. I read the word of God. And it's, I try and make sense of it. And, um, but but you said, if we're going to meet with God every day and make it repeatable, that it should be enjoyable. Well, I just love rocking chairs and I love looking at my backyard. And, And I like my coffee, I like my morning. So I've been beaten with God every day. I read his word. I try to make sense of it. I ask him to speak to me. I meditate on it. I apply it to my life. I write down some, some thoughts in a journal. And then I pray. I pray that God's presence would be so alive to me that I would be more aware of him. And so I've been doing that. And Bill looks at him and he says, well, how, how has that been going for you? And his wife was overhearing the conversation as she was kind of getting the rest of uh, lunch ready. And she goes, I'll tell you how it's been going. This guy is a changed guy. What he does in that chair. It's unbelievable. He's more patient, he's more centered, he's more loving, not just to me, to our kids, in all of his life. A few more years went by, and this guy came to Bill, they had coffee, and he goes, so I'm still having that time with God in my chair, and and I think I'm supposed to get out of the advertising business. And he's like, well, really, how come? He's like, I don't know, God's just been speaking to me in my my chair. He's like, well, what do you think you're going to do? well, I thought maybe I could come in, and work with you, help the church. And he's like, nobody gets paid here. Are you sure? Like, I don't want to take responsibility for your life and your kids and, and and everything. You better go back in the chair and make sure. So a month later, he comes and he goes, I put in notice at work. God, I'm really feeling like God wants me to do this. And And I've got some money saved up, so we'll be okay for a few months. And, you know, if you can pay me, Something, that'll help, but uh, let's do it. And Bill says, this is one of the greatest staff members he had in the early days of his church. This guy came and worked and worked and brought so much joy and energy to their team for years. And then after lots of years, he comes back to Bill and he says, I've been sitting in my chair and God's been telling me that I need to go help a friend start a new church in Colorado. And so we're going to move. And he goes, "What well, can they pay you? And he's like, "Nope, no, but I've been talking to God about it all the time in my chair. I, I got to go back into advertising. You sure you want to do that? He's like, you know, actually, God's given me a lot of peace. I'm actually fired up about it. So he goes back into advertising and for years works in advertising, gives most of the money back to this new church. Guess what? It thrived. And then, one day, as he's sitting in the chair, he's processing a report of cancer. And he still worked, and he got sick. But he worked and worked and worked until he couldn't work. And He was in a hospital bed. It was a fast, fast-moving cancer. And, and the thing he missed the most was his time with God in the chair he died shortly thereafter and and Bill was asked to speak at the funeral and he went out and did and as he's at the funeral reception he meets with this widow this guy's wife and he says man it was just something about that chair and this woman looked at Bill with these misty but joyful eyes His whole life changed because of time with God in the chair. He says, well, what are you going to do with the chair? She goes, we're going to pass it on to our kids and our grandkids, and I'm going to pray every day that one of them would sit in that chair He changed like my husband was. Guys, you want God to change your life? You want your mornings with Jesus to matter? Where's your chair? This guy is no different than you or I. He has no more time in the day than you or I. He just fashioned his life around a meeting with God. He didn't do anything fancy. He didn't have any fancy degree. He just made it enjoyable and made it repeatable. He liked rocking chairs. He liked coffee. He liked the view. He liked mornings. And he became a mornings with Jesus guy. Where's your chair? Your chair can be anywhere, by the way. When Jesus says, don't cling to me, Mary, for I'm not yet ascended to the Father, he is saying the relationship that we've had is going to Change. And so you can't cling to that old relationship. But I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit, He's going to be with you all the time. You'll never be alone. In fact, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will guide you and lead you into all truth if you just stop and listen to Him. It can be anywhere. So, where's that place? Where's that place for you? It doesn't even have to be mornings. Where's that place for you that you open up the Word of God and that you ask Him to speak to you and that you sit in His presence and that you're reminded of His love and that you receive His power? There's one guy who helped us start restoration, and he came to me one time and he said, I've never, never read the Bible. I I just, honestly, I hate to read. And I'm like, have you ever heard of U-Version, this Bible app? And he's like, no. And I'm like, check this out. Do you know that this will actually read to you? He's like, really? He started playing the Bible in his car every day to work. Months later, he calls and says, man, my life is totally different. My wife even says so. He found his chair on the way to St. Paul. Another guy says, "My chair's at Lebanon Hills. Every time I go there, I feel God's presence. It's so easy for me to hear Him there." Fashioned his life. Where's your chair? I'll tell you. As I was thinking about it, my first chair was at the back corner of Bruger's Bagels, about a mile away, in the smell of bread and okay coffee. In a vinyl booth, I heard God and I responded to him out of love instead of duty. It's where I first heard to say start a church. So before we had our ministry center, I bought a chair and I love this chair. Because I can leave my desk and take three steps and it takes me no time at all to see God's presence and feel it and hear it because I fashioned and expected him to be there. There's nothing special about these chairs, people. It's because you fashion time with God. You want your life to change? Just make time for him every day. Father, I thank you, that through Mary's faith being a little irrational or seeing that, and, and Peter's faith being this analytical idea that he had to reason, and, and Thomas's faith being a little bit of a pushback, that he needed that hard evidence that in each of these, you met them where they were at. God, it is a gift. I pray we'd receive it today, that we'd receive living faith and a relationship with you. And even if we've never trusted you, God, I pray that we would just experiment with trusting you. Just start praying, just trying it, wherever it's in the morning or in the evening, God, that you would, you would speak um, not condemnation or guilt or shame, God, but that you would just speak truth to each person here, that they're here because they're seeking you, and that you would affirm their seeking, and that you would speak to them and meet with them, and that our lives would be changed because of it. In the name of Jesus, amen.